Welcome back to the Game Dev Show. This is War Inspectors Part 2. Last week, we discussed the journey of his career up to the other side. And this week, we're going to be looking at what's going on at the moment and bigger picture things like the future and like get Warren's perspective on some of the industry's talking points at the moment. How are you doing, Warren? I'm doing great. Excellent, excellent. Let's just dive in, Mike. Tell us about the other side. Well, you know, when I left the University of Texas, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I, I thought about doing another startup, and that, that was kind of my plan. But I was also, at that point, advising Paul Nurath, with whom I had worked many years ago at Origin. I worked with him on a game he did called Space Rogue, and then he founded Blue Sky, which became Looking Glass. So we worked on several projects together, and he would had started Other Side, and I was at a meeting with him with a uh, potential funding partner, and he just sort of casually said, you know, I, I got the rights to System Shock back. <laughs> and I, I looked at him and I said, wow, you should let me do that for you. <laughs> And I was I was kind of joking, and he called me back a few weeks later and said, "You should do that for me." <laughs> and so I joined him. We we uh, are nominally partners. You know, we we are founding partners together, and we work very closely together to determine the direction of the company and all that stuff. And so I said, as I have said many times, you know, I'm not willing to move to Boston, where your office, your studio is located. And as so many people have said, perhaps foolishly, uh, okay, build an Austin office for us. That's what I did for Looking Glass. That's what I did for Disney. <laughs> and now I've done it for other sides. So that was how it started. And I worked on System Shock uh, for a while. It's so like cavalier, like yeah, do you, want, you know, you want to work on the system show? Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm got a lot going on at the moment. It was pretty cavalier. That's a good, <laughs> good word for it. But that's one of the joys of being part of a startup. You know, at that point, mm. uh, other side didn't really exist as much, and so I was able to get in on the ground floor. And like I said, we are partners, so it was easy for him to make the decision because he was just starting up. And it was easy for me to make the decision because I was kind of between things. It sort of happened. I have to say, I am the luckiest human on the planet. <laughs> you know, things just, my, they just come to me. It's very weird. People always ask me, you know, how do I have a career like yours? And I tell them, don't. <laughs> don't try because I've, I've just been lucky. <laughs> you know? um, no, I think, you, I think you've been very modest. I think it's... Um... It's weird. The industry is quite ancestral at certain levels, I think. Like, I say ancestral is probably not the best word, but it's very, um, you know, a lot of the people you reference, like, referred to in, like, the first, like, season speak about one another, right? And it's almost like, not like the founding fathers, but, you know, it's very, like, there is this community within a community at that level of, like, 30 plus years, which is extremely endearing. But I think, obviously, a part, big part of that, you can't just go on, like, legacy. It's obviously how the work and the projects that you've produced and what heavily influenced, you know, System Shop, Deus Ex, Thief, Wing Commander, 
Ultima, you know, like all of these titles are prestigious, you know. So one thing I was going to ask you, and obviously I know we're not going to talk about System Shock 3 in any way, shape or form, but I would, which breaks my heart, but what I would, uh, what I would, love, to, I would maybe, love to Maybe know. later, maybe, maybe sometime <laughs> down the road. <laughs> how's, how's the development process changed from System Shock 2 to System Shock 3? Because it's, there's a big gap there. Yeah, it's uh, everything's changed at some level. Back in the day, I can't believe I have to say that. But, <laughs> you know, we were making it up as we went along. Nobody knew anything. There was essentially no development process. Process was an alien word. It was just about hard work and a tiny team, tightly bonded, working ridiculous hours, arguing. Feature creep was... A feature of our non-process <laughs> on System Shock, I remember a couple of things. You know, Harvey Smith was uh, the lead tester on the first System Shock game. And I remember going down to, to QA at two in the morning and just talking about design. I mean, and I got such a good sense of his design sensibilities that I had to bring him into my group. I, I had a, a producer group at, well, at EA at that point. And because I got to know him in those late night sessions, I had to steal him out of QA. There was that kind of bond, you know, that is kind of hard to have these days. And, you know, we would go to GDC, the Game Developers Conference. And yeah, the conference was interesting. But what was really important and cool was going to someone's hotel room and arguing about, you know, design of games. I mean, our, our employers and publishers would have been aghast at the things we talked about. There were no secrets. So we were all trading stories and trading, here are the air quotes, process ideas. And so, like I said, we were, we were just making it up. We had very small teams scheduling was ridiculous. It was a nightmare. We had to create game engines for every game. I mean, Richard Garriott literally threw all of his tech away between games. Every numbered Ultima started with an empty hard drive. You couldn't do that today, you know? Graphics, we did the best we could. <laughs> you know, when I started at Origin, we had one color. It was green. I mean, there you go. Now, you know, most people strive for hyper-realism, you know? Mm -hmm. We were playing to an audience like ourselves. We were all geeks and nerds, you know? That was us. And now we're so mainstream that more than one game has sold more copies in its opening weekend than any other entertainment product in history. I mean, that's incredible. But what that yeah. says is we have to meet the expectations of a much larger audience and a much more casual audience that isn't going to put up with interfaces that use every key on the keyboard. We thought mm. that was a good idea. <laughs> what were we thinking? Um, it sounds crazy now. <laughs> it, it does. And I mean, I remember the first time I saw, what was it, Terminator? 
one of the Terminator games. I remember walking into, it was probably Harvey's office actually. And he was playing this game using a mouse. And I just remember thinking, no one's going to play a game with a mouse. What are they thinking? So expectations, I guess. I mean, there, there is process now. We can argue not just about design, but we can argue about, you know, Agile and Scrum versus Waterfall. And I get into this argument all the time. I mean, I'm a believer in, in a couple of things. One is just figure out the game you want to make without constraint. And then scope it back as necessary when you know what's actually scopable, you know, as opposed to other people who say, design your game from the start to hit a budget or ship date, which to my mind just means you're cutting things without real understanding and you're, I mean, to overstate, you're self-censoring, you know, perhaps unnecessarily. So we have that kind of argument now and it's not like anybody's right. Well, I'm right, but you know, <laughs> we talk about different things of necessity development. Boy, here's a hot potato. I remember driving home from origin at three in the morning and getting home and having no memory of how I got there. The drive <laughs> is gone, which is terrifying. But you know, there was a point at origin where someone who will remain nameless set up a set of bunk beds in our break room. And a bunch of us thought that sends the wrong message. And so the next morning, literally the next morning, those bunk beds were in pieces in the, in the garbage. You know, you can't do that anymore. People just won't put up with it, which is, is good and bad. There's power in working ridiculous hours and there's pain in working ridiculous hours. That certainly changed. Maybe the biggest change, this actually touches on everything I've already mentioned, but in my early games, a team of 10 was pretty big. And on Epic Mickey 2, look at the credits. I mean, there are literally 800 people in the credits. We had 200 internally at Junction Point. We had a bunch in Glendale at Disney Interactive. We had help from another Disney studio in Salt Lake City. We had 17, count them, 17 partners, outsourcing partners around the world. I had more producers on Epic Mickey than I had people on my team on earlier games. So, you know, you communication is a problem. Maintaining consistency is a problem. I mean, on a smaller game, a smaller team, you're all kind of, if not literally, then figuratively in the same room. And if something has to change or somebody's done something that you don't like or something doesn't fit, you swivel in your chair and you tell them, you know, or you look over their shoulder. When you have even 200 people internally, there were people working for me at Junction Point who probably didn't know they worked for me and Mm. whose name I didn't know. Certainly that got true at Origin. We got to 300 people and I would pass people in the hall and have no idea who they were. So you can imagine communication and keeping people on the same page is ridiculous. I mean, one of the things that I've lectured about and I taught was the concept of what I call the creative box. That is my term. It does not exist generally. 
if you say it, people in the industry won't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's basically setting up constraints within which everybody works. You know, it's, hey, folks, here's the game we're going to make at sort of the mid to high level. As long as you stay in that box, do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. I will never tell you, make that pixel blue, not green. I will never tell you that that system is being implemented incorrectly. I will never even tell you that that's a system we don't know I lied because on Epic Mickey, a lot of the team wanted to put in a magic system and I said, no. By and large, that's where team freedom comes from for me. But you all have to be pulling in the same direction, making one game. And that was easy back in the day. Now it's very hard, especially when people won't read. I'm a dramatic over-documenter. I mean, I love 300 page <laughs> design documents. And literally no one will read that. I have a specific philosophy of design of what games should be. And I'm committed to that. If it ever comes to the point where I can't make games that express that philosophy, I will stop making games. I have no interest in doing anything else. And I have a mission statement that I, I've shared with my teams at every studio I've run for many years now. And it started out as a 12-page document, which no one would read. So I wrote an eight-page version that no one would read and a four-page version, a two-page <laughs> version. And finally, I wrote a one-paragraph version of my mission statement, and no one read it. <laughs> so I, I boiled it down to two words, which were, and I still use this, and I believe it, it's play style matters. As mm. you, how you decide to play the game is, should have a real difference in the experience. It's a very D&D &D idea, you know. I mean, frankly, one of the most fun things about playing D&D &D is confounding the dungeon master, doing something mm. that just gets their jaw to drop and go, uh, I didn't plan for that. <laughs> I'll have to make something up real quick. Um, and that's what playstyle matters means. It's, yeah. it's that players surprise not only themselves, but... They surprise us as developers. They do things that even we didn't know were possible or would work. And the funny thing is I got the word, you know, there are these things you stick on walls like posters and letters. I don't know how they work, but they like static electricity or something. And I had the words playstyle matters printed up in foot tall letters. <laughs> I, I put those up all over the office. And the team almost, had, there was almost a rebellion. Because they all said, we know this. This is a box. Why did you do this? And being stupid, I said, if you know this, why aren't you doing it? Oh, my. Which was, was not a good thing to say. Oh. But I, I often let my tongue get ahead of my brain. That's the bottom line. I mean, Getting everybody making the same game is mm. really, really hard now. That's probably the biggest difference with a team yeah. that big and budgets that big. You can't take chances. You've got to make a coherent game. Yeah, really hard. Do you think it's lost some of the intimacy in the creative process? Yeah, absolutely. There's no way someone like me 
or someone like Richard Garriott or any of the folks who, who came up through the ranks, you know, on smaller teams, bigger teams, bigger teams, more process. There's, there's no way we can be hands-on with everything and everybody. So what I do is, you know, there are all hands meetings where, you know, you present the vision, you talk about the game, you talk about the pillars and commandments, you talk about the business constraints and all that stuff. But really what I've done for many years now is work through my leads. That's why I keep coming back to Harvey and Chris and Jay and Sheldon and more recently Arturo and Chase and Jason and all those guys. It's like people, you know, they, they want to say, well, Warren created this game. You know, they pour fully formed from my bleeding brow, or something, you know, <laughs> that's not the way it works. So what I try to do now is work through my leads. The leads work through their discipline leads who mm. deal with their, their, with their sub-discipline leads who work with the environment artist team and the character creation team and the animation team and the level design. I mean, you know, I could go on, Mm. but there's no way you can have that intimate relationship with everybody. One of the things I Mm. love is when someone from one of those sub-discipline teams comes to my office and talks to me. That doesn't happen enough. My door is always open. And I love talking to those folks, but either people are intimidated or are too busy or Mm. for whatever reason, they don't do it, you know? So I talk to my leads and they talk to their leads and who talk to their, their, you know, discipline teams. Do you find it challenging? Because obviously when we spoke during part one, you spoke about Steve Jackson's and working on team and how you were so happy that it was exactly how it, you wanted it to just be. And like, obviously your early career in video games, you had like a lot of control over how things turned out. Um, like Doors X, for example. Is it more challenging now because you can almost dilute what your vision is because it has to be, you have to, you know, portray that to your leads who then again portray it to their leads, who portray it to their teams. Do you sometimes find it dilutes it when you get the feedback? No. It doesn't dilute anything for me. I should keep my mouth shut. I, <laughs> I, I get myself in trouble. I don't know how I keep getting work. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I kind of make the games I want to make. And, you know, it's like at IDOS, all that pressure to just make a shooter. Those words mm-hmm. are burnt in my brain. And I hope what's burned in the brain of, of all the folks who were pressuring me to do that is the word no. Yeah. The whole point of the game was that players get to decide how to play and the game shows them the consequences of that choice. Mm. And, you know, it's like I said, that's the kind of game I'm going to make. And Mm. it just look at, I've, I've worked in one capacity or another on what is it? 24, 25 games. Now I've lost track. And whatever role I've played, I think the thing that that I think is most important about about what I do and the way I do it is I am a relentless advocate for a particular kind of game. I am am happy to curse you out if you don't want to do the kind of game I want to do. 
because my tongue often gets ahead of my brain. And that, I think, just never compromising on that vision of what games can and should be is, I think, the most important thing I've done over the last 38 years. And Mm -hmm. right after that is giving other people the room to work within those constraints and grow in their roles to the point where they can say, hey, Warren, you're wrong. At my last few studios, I have told my leads that if they don't tell me I'm full of shit, at least once a week, I'm going to fire them. <laughs> some of them really do. <laughs> some of them aren't that nice, you know. Uh, but that's, that's the whole point, you know. You hire people better than you. Mm-hmm. You give them a goal. You tell them the constraints. And then you get out of their way. They're smarter than you. They'll make you better, you know? Mm. And then, you know, the other thing is, I always tell them this too. Yes, you are empowered to do whatever you want within the constraints that I have laid out. But I have one more vote than everybody on this team combined. So I can always say, no, we're not doing that. Or that's wrong. Or that's not good enough. But if I ever have to use that extra vote, it's my failure, not yours. And so far, I have very rarely had to use that vote. Very, mm. very rarely. That's a great practice. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you mentioned, like, obviously, you know, you do this because you make the games you want to make. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. And it's interesting. And I don't know what genre you would call, like, system shocks almost. It could be loads of things, right? Like, it could be horror survival i tried playing system shock 2 and i was just too scared like you know the monkeys and the robots and it was just too much but things like system shock do x and thief and i know your like influence over them as you know ips varies greatly you know but you're heavily influential in the development of each of these titles but they are very similar. They do have this like environment where the player is about player choice and player experience and you know it's almost like a book but the player's reading back the book to you and what is it about that genre that really draws you to it first of all a lot of people don't like the term immersive simulation but i love it (laughs) and no one has come up with anything better so i I sometimes call them im sims so people don't get upset with me about saying immersive simulation but That is the genre. That is the thing that links literally every game I've worked on from the early Mm. Ultimas up till, you know, today. That's the genre. There's a whole talk about genre too. Oh my God, don't get me off on that. Okay, so that's part one of my answer. Part two is it's particularly true on Deus Ex, but and less so on some of the other games, but it's still true on all these games. One of the things that defines immersive simulation for me is, is not very sophisticated, but it's the idea of genre mashup. At some level, immersive simulations confound marketing people, which is kind of cool, actually. (laughs) But, you know, Deus Ex, it empowers players to play the, the way they want because the first thing I thought about was, I want to make a game where you can fight, sneak, or talk your way past any problem. It was that simple. So it's shooter, stealth, role play you know 
that's what Deus Ex did at some level. We had an, a deep enough simulation, which is a big part of it, where the world was a tool, not just a movie set, not just a backdrop. You know, you use the world, you use the things in the world and, and interact with them in logical but not predictable ways. I mean, that's kind of the essence of it. And out of that, you get secondary effects, like I blow this thing up and that blows this thing up, which opens this door, which, you know, attracts more, more enemies because you've made a lot of noise, which wasn't your original intent, but it was the ultimate logical effect of mm. shooting that first explosive barrel. So that genre mashup and a tool and characters and NPCs that attend to what you're doing and respond specifically to that, not in the mm -hmm. way that we intended, but the way that the simulation demands. Okay. Mm -hmm. And all of those games, I mean, like I said, from the early Ultimas, they've all done that to some extent. Mm -hmm. The goal is to do it a little bit better and a little bit deeper and a little bit more compellingly each time. The interesting thing, you said choices. I get that a lot, that, you know, your games are about choice. That's true as far as it goes. But then some people get to choice and consequence. And not that I'm bitter. I think I said those words before Peter Molyneux did, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> that's interesting and correct as far as it goes. But there's one more step that most people don't acknowledge, don't do consciously, or don't do at all, which is recovery. I don't mean to get all geeky here, but for me, immersive sims and games that I like to make are about choice, consequence, and recovery, okay? You make a choice, that has a consequence, but what if you don't like that consequence? Mm. What if that damages your game? What if that negates the idea that your play style matters. Okay. So you have to let players say, wow, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want that guy to hate me. Or I didn't want that faction to stop giving me missions. Or I didn't want to blow up all of the ammunition in this dump. You have to let players pull back to get. Mm back the game they want to play. It's like there are other games that I won't name where if you fail a stealth attempt, the rest of that mission, if not the rest of that game, is you playing a shooter. And mm. the whole, not the whole point, but another point of this kind of game is you really do find your own fun. You know, you say to the game sort of figuratively, this is the kind of gameplay I like. Mm -hmm. And a game that doesn't offer recovery says, screw you from, mm -hmm. you know, you failed. You're playing my game now. And the games that I have championed are all about saying, I'm going to get off the stage and make sure you're on it. I'm going to let you find your fun. I'm going to let you show how clever and creative you are, not show off how clever and creative I am. Yeah. That's really cool. I think I said this in another context before. No other medium in the history of humankind has been able to do that. 
Mm. We turn every player into an author, the mm. author of their own experience. Yeah. And what's more powerful than that? I mean, mm. nothing. So that's yeah. why I do what I do. It's interesting, isn't it, with the recovery side, because obviously you have like the roguelike, which is growing in popularity. You make a mistake and you start again. It's almost like a bit of a relapse in some ways. It reminds me of like back in the master system, you know, 2D platformers where you had three lives. You didn't have a save. You had to finish the game in one sitting. Otherwise, you would be turning your console off, turning it back on and trying again. And it's interesting how that's become its own genre for people who want to have consequence, which they can't recover from. And it's really interesting that you're right. Like, I do think that people don't think about recovery because actually it does feel in some ways like game design has lent more towards consequences absolute, but actually they should be a window for players to say, yeah, maybe that wasn't what I was wanted to do. Like you would in real life, right? You go and buy something in real life, then you're actually like, do you know what? I actually don't need this. You take it back, you have your money, and then you spend the money on a different item. Obviously, that's a terrible example. But that, yeah, you're, yeah, it's very interesting because choice and consequence are always discussed, but never recovery from consequence. Yeah, yeah there are about 10 things in that simple statement. Holy cow. One of the interesting things about recovery is there's an art to it. If you make recovery too hard or take too long, you lose players. Yeah. If you make it too easy, it means that the consequence was irrelevant. Mm. So there's a real balancing act there. I mean, frankly, that may be the real art in making this kind of game, finding the balance between consequence and recovery. So that's pretty cool. One thing I, I have to say, though, I really have a tendency to overstate to make a point. And I have to be clear that it's not for me to tell other developers what kind of game to make. Mm. And it's not for me to tell players what kinds of games to play and like. It's just that this is hugely important to me. And as long as there are enough people in the world who agree with me <laughs> that I get to make another game, I'm yeah. a happy guy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but there are plenty of developers who think I'm nuts. No, it's interesting because I've always thought that the immersive simulation ethos, I guess, is the most mainstream thing in the world. Because if I'm playing a shooter and I'm not good enough at shooting, my options are, oh, wait, stop playing. And if I'm not good enough at sneaking, my option is to stop playing. But in a game like Deus Ex, or even Epic Mickey, which people didn't see the immersive simulation qualities in that game, probably because it was a Mickey Mouse game, and they couldn't admit that they wanted to be a mouse for 10 hours. Anyway, the, the <laughs> point is, what immersive sims are telling the player is, if shooting is too hard for you, try something else. Mm -hmm. If sneaking is too hard for you, try something else. If going in the front door is too hard for you, try the back door, you know? Yeah. And that always seemed like the most mainstream idea in the world. What I see happening now is more of a move towards, I guess, puzzles, 
The words mm. are not allowed to say at my studios, by the way. Problems and challenges <laughs> are what we create, not puzzles. I see more and more games where if you move forward like a shark, you win. Mm. And I think there's a reason for that. And it gets back to something I said earlier. We are a mainstream medium now. And immersive simulations actually require you to think. Their cadence is very different than other games. It's okay. Get to an observation point, stop and observe, identify the challenge, make a plan, execute, identify the consequences, deal with the consequence. You can't see my hand is moving at, at each <laughs> step here. It's a very staccato rhythm as opposed to the smooth rhythm that most developers go for. And what that implies is, wait, I have to stop and look at something? I have mm. to assess a situation. I have to decide for myself how I'm going to deal with it. Then I have to go, 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 go and execute the way you would in, in other games. And then something bad could happen. Holy cow. Mm. That's the loop over and over and over again. And that can be pretty intimidating, even for players. I remember when when we were putting Deus Ex in other people's hands, in gamers' hands, they would come to a, like the first choice point in the game. And I would see them stop. Great, that's what you're supposed to do. I would see them look around. That's what they're supposed to do. And then I would see them push the, the keyboard away and put the mouse down and say, figuratively, I have to make a real choice here? Wow, <laughs> it's intimidating. And for a mainstream medium, puzzles and the joy of skill use are probably more in line with the mainstream, frankly. Mm. I was going to touch on something you said, you know, when you're talking about player has to decide, you know, say you're not good at shooting and you decide to sneak. And then if you're not good at sneaking, then you can talk. What do you think, because obviously this comes back to D&D &D and what we chat about in part one, but classes right like you have classes in games like you know wizard fighter rogue and i almost feel like from from the outset you're saying this is how i'm going to approach the entire game because you're positioning yourself people want to have choice and by being able to set a class at the beginning it's very empowering to know that the people you're playing with aren't the same class as you so you can add something to a team because everyone wants to feel valued within a team-based game for example in a single-player game, say you have to pick a class, you are almost making that decision before the game's even started how you're going to approach the rest of the game. How do you get around that? Boy, is that a great question and a great thing to think about. I think about that a lot. In my dream world, in which we do not live, by the way, <laughs> I would do away with character classes. One of the ways in which I think we can and maybe should move away from D&D &D is in the simulation tools we use to create an experience. Gary and Dave used the best tools at their disposal to create a simulation. Strength, dexterity, intelligence, with you know, charisma, all that stuff. Those abilities, those basic abilities with a number attached to them using die rolls to determine the outcome of a choice. That worked really well. But again, because those are the best simulation tools they had. We have, I think, better, more, I always hate to use the word realistic, but more realistic simulation tools. And 
What that means is you can hear the air quotes around this, create a character through the way you are playing the game, not through arbitrary, well, you know, wizards can't use armor. Yeah. That makes no sense. (laughs) I mean, it's totally arbitrary. And so in my heart of hearts, I would rather take advantage of player expression so each player's character reflects them. Yeah. You know, your choices, what I want is your choices to be more about you as a human being outside of the game than about how your squidgy little 64 pixel tall avatar doll puppet would yeah. do things. Mm. So I'm not a huge fan of character classes, but having said that, immersive sims are work and they require thinking and anything you can do to give players a shortcut to make it a little bit less work and help them with that thinking is a good thing. Mm. Okay. And so, you know, DSX didn't have character classes, but it had skills that you could improve and all that stuff. It even had a character with a backstory, you know, Mm. and a brother and Mm. That like pulls you right out of the experience too. Man, there's a whole talk about this that we can have. But in the real world of games, there's real utility to character classes. And Mm -hmm. as you said, you mentioned team. And that gets at something else that's really big. In the world of multiplayer games, differentiation of characters is critical you need to put together a team that is made up of people with complementary skills. Frankly, multiplayer games are more like sports than they are like games. Yeah. You know, you need a pitcher and a catcher and an outfielder and a first baseman, you know, you need a tank and a healer and, you know, Mm. whatever, you know, this as well as I do. So character classes have real utility in a multiplayer game. And we are in a world where, It pains me to say this, but it's almost like the single player mode in most games is an afterthought. It's there Mm. because, well, you kind of have to have it, not because that's the focus of the game. And so character classes are, even in my mind, a much more important thing than they used to be. It's also, do not assume you know anything about whatever work I'm doing at this point, but (laughs) there's a really interesting thing to think about in the idea of immersive simulation in a multiplayer world. That's a really interesting thought exercise. Yeah, I can't wait to uh, hear more about that at some point in the future. (laughs) Um, I I don't assume you know anything about what I'm actually doing. I, I often think about stuff that I don't do. Character class is always a thing that I think I love it. I love having different choice and reading up about different classes. But I sometimes think that game design is based on how the character interacts with the environment or the class interacts with the environment. And maybe the next step is actually how the player interacts with the character they're playing. Because if your character starts doing things and acting in a way that you're not in control of or it's a byproduct of some of the decisions you've made, then you've literally taken, like, it's, I feel like character interaction with an environment is step three, but actually if you go back to step two, it's how your character acts without that environment. And then step one is how the player interacts with that character. 
Also um, an, a really interesting point, by the way. I get into arguments, not only with other people, with myself, about whether it's a good idea to give characters backstory and personality and names and all that stuff, or if it's better to just let the player define their own character. In System Shock, you're the hacker. In Ultima Games, you're the avatar. You don't have a name. You don't have a personality or a backstory because it's about the player outside mm. of the game. And I hate it in games when the character becomes more important than the player. If a character is a dashing Robin Hood guy who laughs at danger and gets in a firefight and starts laughing and you know saying, isn't this fun? And the player's going, what are you talking about? I am sweating and I've got adrenaline coursing through, coursing through my veins. Yeah. That is, talk about cognitive dissonance, which is why in Deus Ex, though J.C. Denton had a backstory and a name, poor Jay Frankie, the guy who did his voice, I made that guy talk in a monotone like this so it would never be a point where the character was happy but the player wasn't. You know, it, it's horrible. It's terrible acting, but mm. it was necessary to get around that cognitive dissonance. And having said that, there are lots of games now. Almost every game gives characters a name and a personality and a backstory and all of that. And I am really torn about that. I don't know what the right answer is. So yeah. don't assume you know anything about what I'm doing now. No, I think it's challenging. Like, I think... Probably the best game I've ever played is a game called Planescape Torment, a really old oh, sure. uh, Black Isle game before they became Obsidian, I believe. And the reason I thought it was so good was as a player, you were trying to find out what had happened to your character. So they had a backstory, but it was about discovering what that backstory was by interacting with the environment and advancing the narrative. I don't think enough games focus on that as a design ethos um like you said i think it's a lot e i don't think it's a lot easier but i think it's more standard practice to have your heroine who's got a predetermined backstory or just let the player mold the character how they want to play there's not this there, i always feel like there's a middle ground which we should be exploring but yeah i took that phrase but i will i will actually ask you about something about does x I saw recently that you said that Joe's X couldn't be made now as it is too real. Um, it's too real for present times. And it's very true, right? Like if anyone's played Joe's X, you can see there's a lot of parallels and why it'd be quite challenging to make a game like all the same game now. Do you think that developers should be doing more within their worlds, their narrative and their design decisions to positively affect our world, considering how influential games is now and how many people they reach now or do you think that detracts from what games offer at their core which is escapism well escapism is an interesting word because it isn't enough to say the player is escaping into another world i think it's also important to think about what the player is escaping from and mm. having your game talk about that too. Again, this is just me. If you want to make a puzzle game, go right ahead. <laughs> I play puzzle games too, you know? The key is games can 
do anything any other medium can. And, you know, there are movies that, hear the air quotes, because escape is a, a trigger word for me. Movies that are nothing but escapism, you know, Mm. and there are movies that make really deep, radical statements about, you know, humanity and and the state of the world. Mm. And to try and pigeonhole games into one of those buckets, Mm. I think is a huge mistake commercially, but also for the growth and maturation of the media. I used to be embarrassed to say the word art. I am no longer embarrassed to say that we are an art form. Screw you if you don't think we are. And art shouldn't be constrained by commercial considerations or fear of, you know, whatever cancellation, you know, to use Mm -hmm. the buzzword of the day. And I would never say that a game like Deus Ex couldn't be made now. I would say and mean it. I would not make Deus Ex now. I would make mm-hmm. a game that expresses the same gameplay philosophy, but I would not make a game where every conspiracy theory is true <laughs> because there are too many wackos in the world who believe that, and I don't mm-hmm. mind saying the word wacko. Yeah. And there are people who believe that a pandemic like the Grey Death and Deus Ex is, you know, the product of secret rulers of the world who are withholding the cure. And I thought it was important to get people at least thinking about, I don't have, I no, I do have opinions about all of this stuff and about the state of the world at the end of Deus Ex and about Mm. who's right and wrong when you talk to the, the terrorists versus Yanatko. But no one in the world will ever know what I think is right and wrong about those because what's mm-hmm. important is the player deciding for themselves. But I probably, this is probably revealing something about what I think, but I probably wouldn't make a game about, you know, maybe the terrorists are right mm-hmm. or where the Statue of Liberty has been destroyed, yeah. you know, or the Twin Towers aren't in the skyline anymore. So I wouldn't make that game anymore, but that's more a reflection of my own beliefs about the world than it is about the game itself. Yeah. Do you think, like, I think it should be something that comes into conversation more when developers look at, you know, design docs and things like this. It's like, well, actually, we have a responsibility. I, I don't know. I just think, maybe, is it something that we should be? I look at music, for example, and like film and documentaries. And often now, not just now, but they have done for a long time. There's content created now solely to raise the discussion, I guess, and the questions about and to inform people about actually what's going on in the world. And at what point should games start doing the same thing? I think games are doing the same thing, just Mm. not all games. I doubt the people who made, I haven't seen it, so I'm not judging quality, but I doubt the people who made Jungle Cruise were thinking a whole lot about the state of the world. Yeah. You know? And that's perfectly fine. But I don't know if you have this in the UK, but there's a television show called Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which I love. And they're in their eighth season now. And they're talking about, you know, the role of the police in New York City and what should be done to ensure that, you know, the police are acting appropriately. Mm. So it's fine, even in a comedy. 
I mean, it's fine to be thinking about that stuff, but it's not necessary. What bugs me a little bit, and again, I'm not going to name names of games or companies, but there are some games out there where the design is brilliant. I mean, brilliant, beyond what I could ever imagine. But the content is reprehensible in my mind. Yeah. And that's what bugs me. When people, developers, don't think through what they're doing or decide that that what they're doing doesn't matter. You know, I'm not big on transgression as a, a narrative element. And especially, you know, in the same way that I was really tired of doing fantasy and science fiction games at one point, I am now tired of making games that even allow killing grimness, grim, horrible, Hmm. cynical, the world is gray and terrible. I'm just sick of it personally. Mm. And so that was one of the reasons why Epic Mickey was such a nice change of pace. I mean, that was important for me to do. And now I'm in a place where don't assume you know anything about what I am doing. I would love to do something that does one of two things. Either there are no guns in it at all, or there's one gun on a mantelpiece with one bullet in it. And when you pull that trigger, it is the biggest, most consequential thing you ever do in the game, as it would be in the real world. That's kind of where I am. But again, it's mm. it's not for me to tell other people what to make or play. I got a thing I've been calling the one block role playing game since I was, you know, knee high to a grasshopper. I don't know exactly how to make it. And which is why I haven't done it. And no one's been foolish enough to offer me the money to figure it out. So mm-hmm. maybe someday. I don't know. But that, that would have one gun. Do you know what's interesting with that, though, that, like, obviously that contradicts that design philosophy of uh, recovery, you know, choice, consequence, recovery. Um, Maybe, maybe not. You need context behind the idea to know how you would use that. It might might be a three-minute experience. Everyone would probably use the gun straight away. I I do know a lot more about it than I'm going to say, that's for sure. It would not be a three-minute experience. what I'd like to wrap up on is just like a summary of what you, because obviously you've been in the industry for such a long time and you've got this fantastic legacy. What do you think of the games industry at the moment? Like based on everything you've seen over the last, you know, like 30, 40 years, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, like just your summary of where it is and where you think it will or it should go. Maybe they're different. Well, at some level, I think, Prediction is a fool's game, but I've never been accused of being anything but a fool. Um, So where we are, it's interesting. In a way, I don't want to overstate this, but in a way, we are in a genuine golden age. I kind of alluded to this earlier. There's no kind of game that is outside our possibility space, you know? Mm. There is room now, and there are people making huge triple a 300 million dollar blockbusters that are the biggest entertainment products in history there are people doing that and there are people 
two people in a garage, Mojang. I mean, you know, there are, there are tiny little, little companies or individuals making their own games. There are people coming out of school who may not have the impact of a Minecraft, but they can still make their game. Mm. And that didn't used to be true. You used to need, even if it was a small team, you needed a team, you needed someone to put the game in a box and get it on store shelves. You needed a business model to make money. And all of that is in flux right now. And there's no right or wrong answer, okay? You know, when people ask me what's happening in games today, my answer is everything is happening in games today. Mm. So where we are is pretty interesting. I will express a little bit of frustration that if you're not in the AAA space or in the real indie space, it's hard to make a single player narrative game these days. But other than that, which is a personal beef, we're in a really good place right now. Where we're going to be in the future is tough. It's tough to say. I will probably piss people off, but I think VR is a fad and no one should be spending a dime on it. VR comes along every 10 years to save whatever medium needs saving. You know, Jeremy in the 70s, you know, there were 3D movies in the 80s. There were 3D movies in the 50s, for crying out loud. There's VR. Nintendo did a VR thing in, what was it, the 80s, I guess. The virtual Um, play was the virtual play. VR comes along every 10 years, you know. AR is more interesting, but that's another point, too. It seems clear (laughs) that multiplayer is here to stay. That doesn't help introverts and and antisocial people much, and I hope we don't leave them behind, but clearly multiplayer is here to stay. And I'm not sure we've found the perfect model of multiplayer yet. Uh, We certainly haven't pushed multiplayer everywhere it can go, but I think that's obviously a part of our future though I hope not the only future. I think AI is going to get much better, though I, I'm i a little scared that we'll get to the point, and I think it's really possible, where in the same way that there are deep fakes now, you won't be able to tell that an NPC is an NPC, or they'll become so responsive mm. that they cease to be iconic. Read Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, and he talks about the difference between realism and iconicism. I don't know what the word is. And personally, again, just personally, I am far more interested in stylization and iconic presentation than I am Mm -hmm. hyper-realism. I think hyper-realism is kind of boring, but that's just me. But I think AI is going to get much better. And here's a longer answer than you wanted, I'm sure. But (laughs) I used to sit around, there was one time actually with Doug Church, the secret master of gaming. And we were sitting in a restaurant talking about AI and immersion and simulation and how sad and sorry the state of those things was at the time. And I don't remember who said it first, but we got talking about what we call, again, I don't remember who said it, but the glass of milk problem. And what that was, was there's a glass of milk in the middle of a table in a restaurant and you can knock it over. Okay. We have trouble even doing that as a note. But let's assume we get to the point where our simulations are deep enough that you can knock over a glass of milk 
and have it actually spread the milk spread, you know, believably and drop off the edge of the table into someone's lap. Okay. How does that NPC react Hmm. now, even today, let alone when, when we were talking about it, even if you could simulate the glass of milk getting knocked over, the NPC would either have no reaction or have a pre-planned reaction, maybe. Mm-hmm. But in the real world, if that person is a grandfather who's sitting there at, at the table with a five-year-old grandkid, the response is going to be one thing. If it's a, you know, a guy you're breaking up with and he knocks the glass over, the person who has a wet lap is going to react differently. And, you know, and on and on, you extend that scenario out to its logical, not illogical, but its logical extremes. We can't do any of that. And my hope is we get to the point where our AI is, is smart enough to deal with that simple situation, extend it out to all of the situations in a simulated world, you know, that we can, we can provide for players. So I hope that's a part of our future. You know, we'll see. I don't know. Yeah. No, I'm not going to say, okay. I am going to say, I hope we put less emphasis on data collection and Mm. market research and all that kind of stuff. It's not going to happen. That stuff is with us to stay and is going to become more important uh, every day. But there's a truism. This is received wisdom. So it might be wrong. And if it is, I will withdraw the statement I'm about to make. (laughs) But there is a truism in the game business that 80% of games fail in the marketplace. And that's despite all of the market research and the Mm -hmm. data collection and the play testing and all of that stuff. People think prediction of success or increase in the probability of success is predictable. And my comeback to that is if as someone who doesn't do much, has not done much of that, let me rephrase that because we're in a world where I'm going to do it. Okay. Mm. But if I had an 80% failure rate, I should be fired and I should never be allowed to work again. Letting creative people do what they want to do could not result in a worse outcome than an 80% failure rate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just don't understand why people don't see the logic of that. Unless yeah. I'm completely wrong and <laughs> 80% of games succeed. I, I don't mm-hmm. know, you know? Do you but think the statistics wrong? Do you think like that 80%? Do you think that's wrong? I think the problem, the hard thing at the moment is like because of how open source game developments become with like Unity, and I know we spoke about this in part one, but you know, because you've got like, it's so much more accessible now, you have a dulge of titles, like thousands and thousands of titles going on Steam every year. And I think even if you've got an incredible title, if you don't have a bit of luck to get that exposure, just that screen time to be seen, even your advertisement to be seen on Steam, if you're a small indie, you can have like a really, really innovative title or a fantastic rate of arc, but you may never be seen. I sometimes think the success of a title isn't down to the title. It's actually down to a bit of luck and a bit of exposure. Yeah, uh, luck is huge. I mean, uh, I said, you know, we're in a golden age. The real downside of that is discoverability is a huge problem. 
And I do not have the answer to that. But to the the value of marketing, I totally agree. I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's no question that getting your your game in front of potential players is mm-hmm. critical. But that has nothing to do with marketing determining the content or gameplay of your product. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's where I you know, my, my stomach gets in a knot, you know, I've had experiences where marketing people, and I mean, I've worked with some really good ones, you know, I mean, really genuinely, genuinely good ones, but sometimes, you know, you get feedback that either kills a game that you know would be cool and you know, Mm. the world wants or specific details are dictated by, by market research. And that's where things get dicey for me. Discoverability, getting your game out in front of the public, huge. Yeah. And determining content and gameplay, that, that's where I get nervous. So yeah. I hope that either gets better or we become more trusting of the people actually making the games. Yeah, that's a great way to bookend this episode. <laughs> it's, it's been fantastic. Oh, it's- yeah, it's been brilliant, haven't you? Between this part two and part one, we've, you know, explored your journey industry, the industry. Like, obviously, we talked about some, like, the design philosophies, like, some of the challenges the industry's facing, obviously, how that impacts, like, you and, like, the way you look at game design. And obviously, it's great to, like, bookend that with how you would summarize the game industry and where it may go. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, this was a ton of fun. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Pleasure. All of the views and uh, opinions today expressed are those of Warren's and mine and do not reflect our employers in any, any shape, <laughs> way, or form. Boy, is that true. Holy cow. <laughs> and if you want to reach out to us, you can at the game dev show at ptw.com. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Warren. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. I'd do it again if you'll have me. (laughs) Game over.